everyone, I'm Ian McLaughlin, a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. And hi, I'm Bo, a material scientist and general science enthusiast. So, what do you have for us to chat about today, Ian? A couple of things. Two, in fact. Well, that is literally what couple means. <laughs> so let's get started. What's first? Um, okay, so have you ever heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Test? Yeah, I think so. So that's where they put a kid in a room and the test basically measured if the kid would decide to take either one mar marshmallow immediately or wait a bit and then be rewarded with more than one marshmallow for being able to wait. Exactly. Um, that was the premise of the study that's now referred to as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. And by the way, I'm pretty sure it's now being criticized, right? That's right. I mean, uh, it's it's been criticized over the years, but basically it was a study that was conducted in the 1960s by um, somebody named Walter Michel at Stanford. And he was interviewed for a piece um, in The New Yorker by Maria Konnikova in 2014. She opens the piece with the fact that he had tremendous difficulty quitting smoking cigarettes. She quotes him as saying, quote, I was a three packs a day smoker supplemented by a pipe and when the pipe ran out, it was supplemented by a cigar. That's quite a bit of tobacco. I mean, <laughs> yeah. this guy enjoys his nicotine. Yeah, it's quite a bit. But in 1964, the Surgeon General, Luther Terry, under uh, JFK and then LBJ at the time, puts out a statement that reports the dangers of smoking tobacco. And uh, Michelle begins attempting to quit smoking. He tries and fails spectacularly, according to the New Yorker interview. Okay, interesting framing. So we're using nicotine addiction as the backdrop. That's right. And so everyone's on the same page. The experiment entailed presenting a child with some kind of treat. Um, and marshmallows were just one of the possible options, by the way. Um, and then the kids were told that they could either eat one treat immediately, or they could wait for several minutes alone until the researcher returned, at which point they, they'd be um, given two treats. And importantly, the treat was always visible and very easily accessed. They could just ring a bell, signaling an experimenter to come into the room, thereby sacrificing the future doubling of their treat. Okay, so these kids are waiting alone in a room, and I bet the rooms that were used for this experiment weren't particularly comfortable, and I assume they were silent, so no other distractions. And, I mean, I can imagine there are very few real-life experiences or choices that resemble a situation like this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that broad argument is essential to a main critique of this experiment. Right. Okay, and if I remember correctly, the takeaway was that the longer the kids were able to wait, the better their life outcomes in terms of things like uh, grades in school or eventual income. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, Michelle found that the longer a child was able to wait, or as we say in the field, delay gratification, the better their lives would end up in things like academics or income or health or incarceration, drug abuse, and, and so on. And this difference in behavior was attributed to differences in executive function. So they're saying that the kids who didn't in immediately eat the marshmallow just seemed to enjoy better lives in general compared to those who gobbled it up right away. And this was due to some kind of difference in their brain activity that seemed to persist throughout their lives. Exactly. Not only that, but as Michelle traveled all around the world to evaluate the importance of delayed gratification among a variety of socioeconomic circumstances, different countries and different income levels, the overall takeaways of his work seemed to remain consistent. No matter where he went, delayed gratification seemed to track with positive life outcomes. However, all the while, he continued smoking and just could not stop. According to this interview, he, quote, convinced himself that all those negative repercussions he had learned about had nothing to do with him. Okay, so I see. the In the interviewer... Ma Maria Konnikova. 
Okay, right. So she's basically highlighting that he had sort of a paradoxical career and lifestyle. That's right. And he ultimately did quit smoking after coupling cigarettes with a disgust response, which is frankly a topic worth discussing in the future and maybe uh, even came up when we were talking about addiction. But yeah, yeah, he had a sort of intriguingly paradoxical life. However. However. Okay, so there <laughs> is a rebuttal to the marshmallow study? There is. So, a study published in Psychological Science by Tyler Watts, Greg Duncan, and Haonan Kwan. Uh, which is a partnership between NYU and UC Irvine. And here's a quote from, from the study. Quote, as with earlier studies, we found statistically significant, although smaller, bivariate associations between early delayability and later life achievement. But we also found that these associations were highly sensitive to the inclusion of controls. Moreover, we failed to find even bivariate associations between delay of gratification at age 54 months and a host of behavioral outcomes at age 15 which was remarkable given the stability in self-control measures found in other studies. Well, that was a fair bit of jargon yeah. uh, in that, so first of all, bivariate analysis, uh, it's basically used to see if there might be an association between several factors. Uh, the basic explanation of bivariate analysis is seeing if two variables, for example, like gender and age, can predict how well kids might perform academically. In other words, do, uh, say, 12-year-old girls tend to do better in school than 12-year-old boys, and, you know, among a variety of ages? That's right. Um, so basically, while this more recent study did find that early delay of gratification correlated with positive um, scores later on in life, it was a bit more complicated than the original study suggested. And this was likely due to a couple of things. First, the sample of children that the initial study um, all included were from families who had ties to Stanford University because Walter Michel was a professor at Stanford at the time and evidently did a bit of convenient sampling. Convenient sampling, another big word. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the recruitment of study participants from groups that don't actually represent the broader population, uh, but rather these are just the easiest people to recruit. So I'm guessing that he basically recruited kids of his peers and friends at Stanford. Evidently. And despite the fact that the initial study included over 650 kids around preschool aged, um, studies based on follow-ups with the original study participants on their initial measures, on things like SAT scores or behavioral studies, they had significantly fewer participants. But anyways, this team literally tried to extend the findings from Michelle's original work from the 80s, seeing if there might be an association between early delay of gratification and adolescent outcomes among a sample of children that was just more diverse and included uh, a, a broader sample, which, as we just said, suffered from convenience sampling, as well as um, they wanted to interrogate the data with more sophisticated statistical tests. So they were basically trying to replicate the previous findings, but just using better experimental designs. That's exactly right. And as we said, they did find a statistically significant association between a capability to, de to um, delay gratification and achievement just in general later on in life. However, the association, the association that they found was less significant. And beyond that, the associations were highly sensitive to the additional controls that they included um, that were in addition to those that were in the original right, Michelle study. They also didn't find any associations between delay of gratification at four and a half years old and various behavioral outcomes at 15 years old. And this contradicted a pretty broad data set derived from multiple studies. And that last point is basically arguing against the idea 
that our behavior in adolescence, or I guess even adulthood, is somehow predetermined or at least totally predictable by how we behave when we're toddlers. Right, uh, pretty much. Not only that, but they were, um, they were able to predict a majority of achievement differences by just a 20 second difference in how long these little ones would wait before gobbling down their treat. Okay, so it wasn't like there were two completely different reactions to the task. There was basically a distribution of various times that these kids took before eating the treat. And it wasn't like some of them immediately ate it and some of them waited for several minutes. That's what this recent study suggests. And it led them to wonder what exactly this test actually measures if it isn't solely delayed gratification to predict future positive outcomes. And they suggest that it may actually be measuring impulse control, but they aren't quite sure. What they do assert, and in pretty confident language, is that the marshmallow test doesn't measure self-control. So let's step back for, for a second. Basically, because this new group included a bunch of new controls and a broader sample of the population, they basically got a pretty different result from studying how long these kids were willing to wait before eating their treat. That's right. Did they talk about how the kids' behaviors broke down according to their controls? Yeah, um, some of them. When it came to kids with mothers who had a college degree, the kids who waited for a second marshmallow did no better in terms of like test scores and parental reports on child behavior when compared to kids who ate them right away. And then kids with mothers who hadn't gotten a college degree, the kids who waited didn't do better than those who ate their uh, marshmallow uh, immediately. And this was after things like household income and home environment of the kids were controlled. And when you say home environment, what are we talking about? Right. I mean, I think this part of the study extends a bit beyond what I'm used to reading in neuroscience. But evidently, this is a standard environmental evaluation performed in psychology studies. And from what I can tell from this reading, it entails noting things like how many books are visible within the home or how responsive mothers are to their kids while the researchers are there. Okay, so there's just a broad measure of uh, things that are geared towards how, figuring out how much attention the kids are getting and how much attention of that attention is constructive uh, via things like books. I think that's the idea, yeah. All right, so let's get to the point here. What's their argument against the original study? Well, when it comes to peer-reviewed formal academic publications, broader arguments aren't typically included. But these data are being interpreted as not only debunking the idea that delayed gratification predicts future outcomes, but also as a foundation to understand the differences of how kids from different backgrounds behave. So the researchers in this study aren't making these claims, but other people are interpreting the study. Right, which is sort of how science progresses, right? If we were to consider how many people in my position might plan out future experiments, it would go like this. Someone else does a series of experiments, publish their data, and I might use those data in ways that they hadn't ever even considered to make a completely new discovery. Sure, of course. And that's true, not only within a discipline, but between disciplines. Yeah, that's the idea. And so some are arguing that these data highlight the influence of the fact that, for kids from poorer families, daily life holds fewer guarantees. And this translates to increased risk in waiting for a reward that may present itself in the future, because sometimes the real-life promises that are made by parents to which this kind of a study compares, are broken for reasons that are beyond parents' control. There just isn't a treat in the pantry. Sure. So we're basically talking about the idea that there are some delicious snacks that are stored in the cabinets of some families all the time, while other families don't necessarily have those kinds of snacks available whenever a parent brings them up for their kids. 
So in other words, there may be food in the pantry today, but there may not be tomorrow for some kids. Exactly. And so if we consider kids who come from homes with parents who have more money and have gone through more schooling, those kids tend to find it easier to delay gratification. And the differences here have been attributed to the fact that their life so far has indicated that the adults in their lives will always be able to follow through on a promise of treats. Because they're able to purchase the cookies or marshmallows or whatever. Yeah, that's the idea. These kids aren't making different decisions due solely to differences at the neurophysiological level, though of course that's what's ultimately mediating behavior. It's because their brains and therefore their minds have been sculpted by different experiences and environmental stimuli. Ah, so it's kind of like people are integrating ideas from, say, economics or maybe sociology when designing and interpreting these data, right? Yeah, and in an article in The Atlantic by Jessica mccrory Calargo, an assistant professor of sociology at Indiana University, um, which was published last month, she highlighted studies by a Harvard economist and a behavioral scientist from Princeton University um, who, who described how growing up in poverty can be associated with people opting for short-term rather than long-term rewards. And I'm assuming that these data all describe the same dynamics simil similarly. I assume that this is because they can't be sure when a reward might present itself. So a definite reward in the immediate future is more reliable than a hypothetical one in the future. Exactly. And when it comes to the marshmallow test, the equivalent is that a possible future marshmallow, even if the researcher is promising it, is less certain than one that's right in front of them. And then, Calarco discusses research by a sociologist from the University of uh, Nevada at Las Vegas named Ranita Ray. Oh, I feel like Las Vegas is the perfect place to study these kinds of decision-making dynamics. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyways, Calarco discusses a book by Renita Ray in which she discusses adolescents who grow up in impoverished circumstances, who work very long hours in minimum wage jobs to support themselves and even a whole family. Calarco uh, writes, quote, Despite sometimes not being able to afford food, the teens still splurge on payday, buying things like McDonald's or new clothes or hair dye. And similarly, in my own research, and again, you know, keep in mind this is Clarko speaking. Similarly, in my own research with uh, Brea Perry, a sociologist and colleague of mine at Indiana University, we found that low-income parents are more likely than more affluent parents to give in to their kids' requests for sweet treats. These findings point to the idea that poor parents try to indulge their kids when they can, while more affluent parents tend to make their kids wait for bigger rewards. Hair dye and sweet treats might seem frivolous, but purchases like these are often the only indulgences poor families can afford. And for poor children, indulging in a small bit of joy today can make uh, life feel more bearable, especially when there's no guarantee of more joy tomorrow." End quote. Yeah, that was a really long quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it, it does make sense. I mean, you can, you can see how it makes logical sense. And it basically translates to kids making pretty rational decisions by considering the fact that sometimes promises about future rewards are broken and sometimes they're kept for reasons that are outside of their control and their parents' control. And I think something else that I also thought of while you were talking about that is things like cookies may not be seen as rewards necessarily or like these highly desirable rewards for some more mm. affluent kids because cookies are everywhere. They can have them whenever they want. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point. You know, like they want cars, right? <laughs> like that's a reward. <laughs> okay. But I mean, what's overall, what's really kind of cool is that, you know, we've been discussing psychology and neuroscience, uh, but also 
in conjunction with economics, behavioral science, and, and sociology, uh, all in this issue. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's an interesting point. Yeah, it almost feels like we're mixing disciplines in a way that might compromise the quality of each of them. For sure. Um, I, I could imagine some people, even members of each of these disciplines, might see a problem with that. Some people might think things like, uh, you know, science should be pure, and there are reasons for the divisions between these disciplines. And I also, frankly, think there's some validity to that argument. Don't get your neuroscience all up in my material science. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> but, and honestly, I think I'd have pretty much 100% agreed with that argument. I would have, that is, until I went to a talk here in Philly at um, Penn by a scientist named Elliot Tucker Drob from the University of Texas at Austin. And the title of his talk was Genetics, Social Class, and Education in Child Development. Right, so I imagine that it was a combination of several disciplines, at least judging from the title. Exactly. And as the title suggests, his work touches on a ton of super interesting and frankly timely topics about things like race and intelligence, the IQ test, and how much, if at all, the environment can play a role in modifying IQ scores and intelligence. Wow, that definitely sounds like a deep topic. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. And it comes up all the time on, on the live um, Twitter live streams. And I definitely want to discuss that topic, um, particularly since it came up in a debate between several psychologists and neuroscientists and political scientists, like in a contentious discussion between Sam Harris and Ezra Klein, but also between scientists like Eric Turkheimer and uh, Richard Hare. Okay, so you have names and everything. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's definitely a hot topic right now. But not one of the topics we're discussing today. True. And so, uh, to get back to the point made in the honestly pretty remarkable talk by Elliot Tucker Drob, uh, the point that's relevant right now, when trying to describe human intelligence as accurately as possible, he argued that by combining the methodologies and even the techniques of multiple disciplines, you can attack a question from multiple angles. These are disciplines that have been interested in studying and understanding human behavior, decision-making, and, and group dynamics, and, and so on for a while. Many of them arose, at least somewhat independently. And so they use different techniques when trying to describe human behavior. And so sometimes, particularly when asking questions about broader characteristics of humans, again, these are things like you know, intelligence and decision-making, one thing we can do is see how closely the results of experiments conducted by members of different disciplines who are studying the same fundamental um, question comport with one another. Okay, right. So in other words, do the results of a study conducted by a team of political scientists or sociologists look like the results of a study conducted by neuroscientists. That's exactly right. And, Elliot argued, not only is it super informative to see if the results of studies conducted by multiple disciplines are mutually corroborative, but it's a more powerful way to conduct research. Because you're basically looking at the same question from multiple angles. Yeah, that, that's right. So it's sort of like if you're trying to figure out what Stonehenge or maybe, you know, like the Great Wall of China, what it looks like if you're just looking at 2D pictures of these sites, right? You don't really get a comprehensive sense of the size or, or the scale of them. But if you have multiple pictures from multiple angles, you can get a better idea of how incredibly massive they are and how difficult they, uh, they must have been to, to build. Okay, so studying something like human intelligence from multiple angles can give you a better idea of how it works. Right, since it's not you know a simple manifestation of human biology. It's not like height. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Okay, so um, while I was <laughs> prepping, a conversation about this update to the marshmallow test, another update came out, and this one actually involved Walter Michel himself. Walter Michel, the primary scientist on the original study. Exactly. So, this was a study conducted by a team led by a University of Minnesota psychologist named Stephanie M. Carlson. 
they actually conducted two related studies. In the first study, they conducted a survey of over 350 adults in the United States, asking them to predict whether kids today would be able to delay gratification in the same marshmallow test for as long as the kids that Walter Michelle's team tested in the 1960s. <laughs> okay, so basically are kids more or less impulsive today than kids in the 1960s? That's right. And just you know, out of curiosity, what would you expect? Uh, you know, with the advent of smartphones and iPads and these millennials, <laughs> I think they would wait less time. Okay, well, the surveyed adults overwhelmingly predicted that today's kids would not be able to delay gratification for nearly as long. They thought that kids today were more impulsive. Yeah, and there are a variety of explanations for that assumption. Right, so things like increased access to the internet, handheld device devices like, you know, iPhones yeah. and iPads I was talking about, and Game Boys. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's probably something fancier than Game yeah, Boys. Yeah, and I actually remember the first uh, time I ever held a Game Boy. It was like the, f the first kind ever released with, you know, basically like four buttons and a, and a direction pad with like a green and black screen and a kind of creepy grayish sallow colored body of the, of the uh, Game Boy. But anyways, yeah, uh, the underlying assumption was that there are tons of sources of immediate gratification in the form of apps and games and social media and, and you know, short video clips online. And kids don't have to entertain themselves. They don't have to go outside and, you know, play hide-and-seek hide or tag or whatever <laughs> right. kids do. <laughs> right, well, we played Manhunt. Uh, and how does Manhunt differ from hide-and-seek? Well, it obviously sounds cooler. Oh, sure. <laughs> Well, there's just more space available to us, you know, like a whole, like, yard. <laughs> right, and that's what makes Manhunt a better name. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, well, anyways, the adults surveyed overwhelmingly predicted that today's kids are more impulsive and that they'd be less capable of delaying gratification, which is pretty unsurprising, right? At, at least to me, and, and you apparently. <laughs> but then they conducted a second study where they compare the original data, again, you know, from the 1960s cohort of kids who were tested by Walter Michelle's team at, it was called Bing Preschool at Stanford, to two other groups. One of the groups was a cohort of preschoolers from the Barnard, or Bernard uh, Toddler Center in New York City that were tested in the 1980s. And then a third group, um, which was a cohort of kids tested at Carlson's lab in both universities of, um, well, in Washington and in Minnesota. And that study was conducted in the 2000s. Okay, so they compared groups of preschoolers from the 1960s, the 1980s, and the 2000s on how well they performed in the marshmallow test. Exactly. And what they found was a significant linear effect of birth cohort, like, you know, when they were born, on time and delayed gratification. So there was a difference between the kids from the 60s, 80s, and the nots. <laughs> That's right. Um, but the direction of the difference was surprising. So. Children in the 1980s were able to delay gratification for one minute longer than kids from the 1960s. And then kids from the 2000s were able to delay gratification for one minute longer than the kids from the 1980s, and therefore two minutes longer than the kids from the 1960s. Wow, so kids have been getting better and better at delaying gratification. That's what these data suggest. But that's also, you you know, when I think about it, you have to call in mind that these are preschoolers. These are around like four years old. Maybe they haven't succumbed to the, you know, 
iPads and and Game Boys of the world. <laughs> you know, I don't know about that. Like, so we were having a party for um, a postdoc who had been a graduate student in in the lab that that I joined. We've basically been working together for for seven years, and she has this little kid. I, I don't. I think he's probably like two years old, or, or maybe even younger. And so he's in the room while we're all chatting, and you know. Uh, just sort of generally celebrating. It's a pretty loud room with a bunch of adults, right? And the kid, you know, like, I, I, I see the kid in the corner, and he is completely quiescent. Like, he's just totally silent. And he has headphones on, which are plugged <laughs> in to an iPhone. And he is, like, literally, I wouldn't have even noticed that he was there. He, and this was for, like, several hours, five, like, five hours or something. This kid is just sitting there. This, like, young child is just sitting there with a device in his hands, and headphones on. So I don't know. I mean, maybe you're right about that. Maybe like they haven't quite adapted, but it, it was pretty pretty early. I mm. think that's that's a pretty solid parental uh, solution these days. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and so and so Carlson and her group were, were surprised by the findings as well. Um, in an interview, she said, "Quote: We had the same sort of perception that children today might not be able to delay gratification as long as those had in the past, and perhaps don't have as good self control as they had in the past." given all the readily available media gratification and so forth that children have today. And I was surprised when my own kids delayed gratification in the marshmallow test when they were little. So they hypothesized the opposite, basically agreeing with the group of adults that they initially surveyed. That's right, and, and with you, right. And it, it, it seems that way, at least from this interview. However, she later said that they were equivocal in their prediction. So, you know, they assumed that there'd be some kind of difference, but they weren't sure in which direction it'd go. But from her initial reaction, it definitely seemed like uh, they expected today's kids to be more impulsive. Do they have any idea why this delay of gratification has increased? Well, at least from the work that's been published, they haven't done any experiments that identify like a mechanism by which these kids have been getting better at delaying gratification. But in that interview, Carlson herself speculates a bit. But I, maybe before we discuss her speculation, what do you think might explain why these kids have been getting less impulsive? Okay, so I actually have two comments. And I don't want to sound too curmudgeonly. But first, you know, what's interesting is that these kids, obviously there's a difference in the in the time period that they were tested, but there's also a difference in the locations. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe there's something that separates East Coast versus West Coast mentalities. I don't know. There could be <laughs> something there. And then my second comment is that I don't know what the economic situation was like in the 60s and 80s. Um, and maybe there was some broader economic, um, some trends or some overall, you know, national level emotion that gave people a sense of security or, or the opposite. You know? I, I like how your first reaction is like East Coast, West Coast rivalry. <laughs> <laughs> West Coasters are just more impulsive or less impulsive. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. <laughs> well, okay. So, so she highlighted that parents today have access to a lot more guidance on child development much of which is based on research into psychological development and, you know, general well-being. And she says, quote, It is the case that electronic devices and screen applications are giving children today a lot more practice with abstract thought, with thinking about representations of reality and representations of the real world, thinking about the here and now. My research, and again, you know, this is, um, this is Carlson speaking, my research with my students and colleagues, as well as other researchers, have found evidence that representational thought, symbolic thought, abstract thought, do contribute to executive function skills, and particularly delay of gratification. So they're saying that 
They're almost saying that the apps that we think are distracting from the maturation of a young mind are actually delivering some kind of benefit. I mean, basically. And I guess I can kind of see it. I mean, you know, I haven't raised a kid or, or used the apps that these young kids might use. Right. I mean, neither of us have. But you know what? This, <laughs> this, this reminds me of my brother playing online games. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling him they're going to rot his brain. <laughs> and he tells me that they're actually teaching him mm. about things like selling armor for coins and, you know, and like in-game economics. I'm a businessman. God. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, I don't know about that. But maybe based on these studies, there's something to that. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what we're talking about here. So, and you know, I guess I don't know for sure. But, but yeah, I mean, it's not like these apps are just injecting a reward signal into their brains, right? I expect that there are some kinds of tasks that need to be performed, and sometimes kids succeed and sometimes they fail, and until they succeed, they don't win. Almost like practicing various kinds of performance evaluations, but instead of being tested on how effectively they remember the details of like the Napoleonic Wars or you know, the ways to calculate an angle with limited information, they need to effectively build a structure and defend it in Fortnite or whatever. Okay, so she's suggesting that video games might be good for kids. <laughs> well, I mean, so she definitely didn't just say that, right? Though I, I don't know if, how averse to the ideas you might be. But she made another point that I think is interesting to consider about the role of preschool and specifically what kids do in preschool. Evidently, the role of preschool education has changed a fair bit since the 1960s. It used to be largely, as she put it, custodial and basically, you know, just daycare. But now, it's shifted to integrating more educational activities, particularly education associated with self-regulation. Okay, that sounds like a, a good explanation. <laughs> and self-regulation, that's just being able to delay gratification. I mean, yeah, so, so that's exactly the point I think she's making. So not only has the experience of being in preschool changed from largely just making sure kids don't hurt themselves to now engaging in activities that translate to better self-control but the percentage of enrollment in preschool education has also increased since the 1960s. So more kids end up in preschool today than did in the 1960s. Exactly. And so there are more kids who are engaging in early life training that can help them be more in control of themselves, hopefully, <laughs> when they get older. <laughs> that, so that's what she suggests. And, you know, she makes it clear that these are the kinds of questions they're going to explore in the future, particularly because while the duration of delayed gratification has expanded over the past few decades, the data that show a relationship between an ability to delay gratification early in childhood and like just a bunch of positive outcomes later on in adolescence as well as in adulthood, it remains unchallenged. Okay, so kids who can delay gratification end up doing better later on in life. Right. In what ways? So uh, on things like academic achievement, SAT scores, but, you know, and that's perhaps un uh, unsurprising, but it also tracks with things like measures of health, things like weight and coping mechanisms for stress and frustration. Wow. Yeah. So, so the team is going to explore how these things might be related in the future. All right. Well, that's pretty cool. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what's our next topic? Well, I mean, it's kind of a similar topic um, in that, you know, we're going to chat about an old school study that's very widely discussed, widely enough that it's likely familiar to most science enthusiasts or even people who focus on politics or perhaps even, you know, interpreting and understanding historical events. Have you ever heard of the Stanford Prisoner Experiment? Of course. And, and so what are your concepts of the study? Uh, okay, so basically, um, when people were instructed to be either uh, prison guards or prisoners, 
they will sort of take on these roles and run with them. Like the guards become like intense and abusive while the prisoners become submissive. Right. I mean, I think that's pretty much the popular understanding of the study. And it's been used to explain all kinds of human behavior that, that are really difficult to understand. You know, atrocities like the massacre at My Lai during the Vietnam conflict, or the abuses that occurred at Abu Ghraib during the early years of the war in Iraq, or even the Holocaust. And, you know, the rationale is basically that people will behave in atrocious ways that are almost impossible to rationalize without them having had been in instructed to do so. And there's almost no limit to human brutality, is sort of what it implies. And even beyond that, perhaps there's an inner beast in all of us that'll burst out of us, given the opportunity. All right, and so what's up? Is, is that not the case? I mean, I know when I see some people driving, it does kind of look like a beast that is at the wheel and then someone cuts them off or something. Okay, well, so, okay. There's a remarkable article published by Ben Blum on Medium. And he interviews a bunch of the people involved in the original study. And honestly, it is full, it's like totally full of surprises, at least to me. Okay, well, how so? So, I mean, so the article is honestly definitely worth reading. He writes it sort of like a mix between a documentary and a story. So, for example, he starts the article with this, quote, It was late in the evening of August 16th, 1971, and 22-year-old Douglas Corpy, a slim, short-statured Berkeley graduate with a mop of pale, shaggy hair, was locked in a dark closet in the basement of the Stanford Psychology Department, naked beneath a thin white smock, bearing the number 8612, screaming his head off. <laughs> That's pretty dramatic. Yeah, definitely setting the scene, right? And um, he describes Philip Zimbardo, the lead investigator of the study. He was a young psychology professor at Stanford who built this simulation of a jail composed of nine guards and nine prisoners, all of whom were male and college-aged, um, and all of whom responded to a newspaper ad and were generously compensated. And so was the fact that they were compensated the problem? Well, it, it was a part of it. And Ben opens his discussion of the fundamental problems with the study by saying that the breakdown he describes, this you know, mental breakdown from Corpy in the basement of the psychology department, it, it was a sham. Yikes. A sham. That's a pretty intense accusation. For sure. And um, he's fairly meticulous with the characterization of, uh, characterization of all the people involved in his article, many of whom he interviewed. Like, you know, for example, he quoted Corpy, the, uh, the student who was having this breakdown, as saying, quote, Anybody who is a clinician would know that I was faking. If you listen to the tape, it's not subtle. I'm not that good at acting. I mean, I think I do a fairly good job, but I'm more hysterical than psychotic. The reason I took the job was that I thought I'd have every day to sit around by myself and study for my GREs, end quote. Oh, I see. So he thought he was basically going to be locked in a study room for the duration of the experiment, basically forcing him to focus on his GREs, <laughs> but they wouldn't let him. Yeah, that would drive me insane too. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Although I should say, I'm pretty sure that uh, just, you know, tangentially, I'm pretty sure that the biomedical graduate uh, studies uh, the, the school of which I'm a part at the University of Pennsylvania no longer requires any standardized test scores. Huh. What? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I think that was a change that was made um, this year. Um, I, I don't know if that's part of a broader movement among graduate programs, but, you know, it's pretty interesting. So to be clear, that's the PhD program you're in? Right. Well, you know, I'm in the neuroscience graduate group, and that's a part of the biomedical graduate school. But, but anyways, <laughs> this change didn't happen when Corpy was getting ready to apply to grad school. And he was scheduled to take the GRE test just after the study was over. And so, right after the study begins, he asks for his books, and the prison staff refuses. Oh, boy. Exactly. And then, the next day, he asks again, and they refuse again. 
Okay, I'd be losing my mind at that point. Exactly. And so, you know, with the priorities of an ambitious young college student, uh, Corpy begins strategizing, trying to figure out the best way to get out and start studying. I see how this could become a problem. Yeah. And so once uh, Copri uh, realized that the initial point of his job, which was basically a cloistered study environment, was wrong, he faked a stomachache. And when that didn't work, he faked a psychotic breakdown. He was quoted as saying, quote, the rebellion was fun. There were no repercussions. We know the guards couldn't hurt us. They couldn't hit us. They were just white college kids just like us. It was a very safe situation. It was just a job. If you listen to the tape, you can hear it in my voice. I have a great job. I get to act like a prisoner. I was being a good employee. It was a great time. End quote. Okay, I don't think that's quite the impression that I had of the study. <laughs> right, and so some of the controversy and tension from the experiments is derived from the fact that the study participants began to believe that they were seriously trapped and that no matter what they did, they were held hostage by this creepy study. So, for example, there's a documentary by a filmmaker, and I'm, I know I'm going to mess up this name, but a filmmaker named uh, Thibault Le Texier, Le Texier uh, who published um, something entitled History of a Lie, but, you know, the title's in French. Um, this uh, includes archives from Philip Zimbardo. A transcript includes a bunch of, you know, interesting clips. And so one is a quote from a taped conversation between Zimbardo and his staff on the third day. And here's how it goes, quote, an interesting thing was that the guys who came in yesterday, the two guys who came in said they wanted to leave, and I said no, there are only two conditions under which you can leave, medical help or psychiatric. I, th I, really th I think they really believed they can't get out, end quote. Well, I mean, wasn't that the premise of the experiment? You're basically signing up to be a prisoner? I mean, sure, but you know, any study that would be considered ethical by an institutional review board or IRB It'd never be okay with, you know, ju just literally holding people against their will with no opportunity for escape under any circumstances. I mean, you know, that'd basically sanction any kind of treatment of the prisoners for a given duration of time. Right, that makes sense. And I do feel like I remember something about how they could uh, quit the experiment if they really wanted to. But evidently, at least they began to believe that they couldn't. Hmm. And so, you know, think about what it'd be like if you were doing your very best, mustering everything you possibly could to signal that you need to get out. You know, pretending that you're ill, pretending that you're, you've legitimately lost your mind. I mean, even actual prison has contingencies for prisoners who become ill and so on, right? And imagine that you receive no response. Yeah, that'd be pretty awful. That would be lawsuit central. Right. <laughs> and so so uh, Balam quotes a former deputy DA for Santa Clara County, which, you know, includes Stanford, as saying, quote, if he, if he says, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to talk to you about getting out, and he's then locked in a room, and he's at some point trying, or ask, trying to or asking to get out of that room in order to communicate as a contract employee or whatever he is, and he's unable to get out of the room, then that would seem to get very close to being out of the realm of informed consent and into the realm of a violation of the penal code. Yikes, so there were possible legitimate legal violations. Yeah, and it doesn't end there. Blum explores why it was that the guards might have been so mean. And it starts with the orientation of the guards, during which the leaders of the study evidently made the expectations clear of the guards' behavior, and maybe a bit too clear. A bit too clear how? Well, um, so there are a few rec uh, recordings available, and I'll see if I can drop a recording here. Guards have to know that every guard is going to be what we call a tough guard. And so far, um, I'm not too tough. 
regard, you know, if it was just entirely up to me, is I wouldn't do anything, and I just let it uh, roll right. off. Our purpose here is not to devise a better prison. The idea is that this is supposed to, this is supposed to be as nearly as we can make it a copy of the existing one. In other words, we want to see what this does to ordinary innocent people. And um, we know it's not nice, but we don't know how it's not nice. And that's what we're trying to find out. And hopefully what will come out of this study is some very serious recommendations for reform, at least reform, if not in a revolutionary type of form. And this, so, so this is our goal. You know, we're not trying to, to do this just because we're all, you know, sadists. Um, we, you see, we want to be able to study what a prison is like. But yeah, so anyways, Blum quotes from the recordings. Things that were said like, quote, we cannot physically abuse or torture them. We can create boredom. We can create a sense of frustration. We can create fear in them to some degree. We have total power in the situation. They have none. End quote. I see. So basically they're saying, you're expected to be pretty abusive. <laughs> right. Um, which sort of contradicts the popular appreciation of the study, right? But Ben Blum goes deeper. Okay, there's more. So yeah. <laughs> what's next? Okay, so he highlights how the student who was serving as the kind of the equivalent of the warden, right, of this hypothetical prison, right? Um, and so this person was an undergrad, and this part is a little wild to me. And I mean, I don't even, I don't know if there's maybe like a more comprehensive, you know, like rebuttal from Philip Zimbardo, again, you know, the lead of, of this study. And if there is, I absolutely want to read it. But in any case, this undergrad evidently has a pretty substantial role in sculpting the Stanford prison experiment. Why that undergrad? Okay, so the student had submitted an account of a simulated prison in response to an open-ended assignment from Zimbardo. And some of the dorm mates of the student were cast as prisoners. And since Zimbardo, again, you know, the head researcher, had never visited a real prison, he relied on his undergrad suggestions, along with the recollections of a consultant who had been a San Quentin parolee with whom he'd connected via the undergrad. Wait, okay, so this was an undergrad who came up with a lot of the study? According to Blum, yeah. Um, he quotes the undergrad in a post-experiment evaluation as saying, quote, I was asked to suggest tactics based on my previous experience as a master sadist. I was given the responsibility of trying to elicit tough guard behavior. Oh, master sadist. <laughs> yeah, that's like, they well, let this guy into Stanford? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's the standard. <laughs> okay, I mean, how old was he even? Uh, so it's not obvious to me, but you know, I know from leading you know, weekly recitation of undergrads here that they're fairly young. I mean, at least if we're considering people devising the rules of a prison, right? Yeah, I mean, college-age students are like between like 18, maybe 24 tops. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, there, you know, there's a range, of course, but I think you're right. But anyways, many of the recordings are from this undergrad, where the participants are acting, who are acting as guards are coached to be tougher. One of the, uh, the accounts is from a guard participant, and it was pretty funny. So Dave Eshelman, who, during the experiment, the prisoners nicknamed John Wayne on account of his southern accent and purported cruelty during the experiment. John Wayne, like from the Western movies. Right, exactly. And so, so anyways, uh, Eshelman, this John Wayne uh, 
character in this in the present in the prison experiment he evidently studied acting in high school and college and he admitted that his accent was totally fake blum quotes him as saying quote i took it as kind of an improv exercise i believed that i was doing what the researchers wanted me to do and i thought i'd do it better than anybody else by creating this despicable guard persona i'd never even been to the south but i use a southern accent which i got from cool hand luke end quote Wow, see, and the guard's accent was fake. Yeah, and so the guy said that while treating the prison, uh, the prisoner participants roughly, he called on his fraternity hazing, but took it way over the top. And despite that, he said that Zimbardo thanked him at the completion of the study. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that this study was conducted at a specific period in the country's history. The study received a fair bit of television coverage. There was even a debate between Zimbardo, you know, again, the lead of the study, an associate, and uh, an associate warden of San Quentin after an attempted escape by an activist and famous author of the book Soledad Brother. And just a few weeks later, prisoners at a state prison in New York State uh, took control of a prison from the staff in pursuit of better treatment. Wow, the prisoners were running the prison. That's right. And so the governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller at the time, he ordered helicopters to dump tear gas and have law enforcement uh, officials retake the prison by force, resulting in a bunch of fatalities. And this was all deeply troubling, and, and it was unfolding um, in front of the entire nation, right? People were, as Blum describes, struggling to understand the cause of this violence. And so keep in mind, you know, this was before we had regular updates of atrocities like, you know, high school shootings, right? Uh, you know, for example, the shootings at Columbine occurred in 1999. So, and this was several decades before those types of events. Yeah, it was all about Beverly Hillbillies and Gilligan's Island. Yeah, and, you know, Bewitched and the Andy Griffith show, and, and Bonanza, you know, and <laughs> I Dream of Jeannie. Um, but anyways, yeah. So, uh, now that I think about that show, it's pretty insane to think that show was considered to be totally normal. Did you ever watch I Dream of Jeannie? Uh, just bits and pieces. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just seems pretty strange in retrospect. Anyways, um, people weren't watching 24 hours of news coverage, much of which filled with violence, right? So this event at this prison was, pre was a, like a pretty big deal in the popular culture. And given that Zimbardo's study had just happened, there was a nice narrative that could explain how people in certain roles could become irrationally motivated to behave in violent ways that most people wouldn't ever consider. Wow, so it's kind of like this study seemed to provide a kind of explanation for the violence that the public was observing uh, for, from this prison-related violence. Right, and so, um, so this study catapulted Zimbardo into national prominence. He wrote one of the most popular textbooks called Psychology, Core Concepts. And the reverberations of this study extended beyond the United States. A Polish philosopher referenced his study in an explanation of the Holocaust. And that's just one example. Zimbardo was elected the president of the American Psychological Association. The APA. Yeah, exactly. And so he was elected in 2001. And then when the, uh, the prisoner abuse at Abu Ghraib was revealed in 2004, Zimbardo was regularly featured on TV discussing how this kind of behavior could have occurred. Jeez. So from the crazy violence in that prison event to the abuse at Abu Ghraib, this study, which was basically, you know, only involving 18 young people, kids as study participants right. who were even like not really taking it seriously it yeah, sounds like right. <laughs> were used i mean this study was used to understand how people could have behaved so violently you know across the world right exactly and you know keep in mind the study is also discussed all over the place in psychology classes all over the country however as ben blum highlights 
The first article about the experiment was published in New York Times Magazine. Which I assume doesn't have quite the same level of scrutiny, or at least scientific scrutiny, as journals devoted to science. Yeah, and so again, uh, this is according to Blond's account of the unfolding of events, but yeah, evidently they started in a magazine that isn't even peer-reviewed. And there was some early skepticism that's been echoed over the years. And so as Blom highlights, an op-ed uh, um, authored by a San Quentin parolee, which was entitled The Lie of the Stanford Prison Experiment. A pretty inflammatory title. No kidding. And um, so, so the author evidently discussed how the techniques that the guards used in the experiments, or in, in the, uh, yeah, in the experiments were, were, were taken specifically from his own experience at San Quentin, rather than being generated from the study participants themselves spontaneously. But so wouldn't that kind of corroborate the idea that being identified as a guard basically inspires the kind of malicious behavior when the limits on punishment are removed and increased severity is encouraged? <clears throat> I mean, so that's an interesting point. Uh, like, even if the techniques weren't just spontaneously invented, but were rather derived from suggestions of a former prisoner, I mean, it's not like they were completely fabricated out of thin air, right? Yeah, that mean they're not completely fake. Yeah, but it would mean that they're not a byproduct of some kind of innate human cruelty. Right. Another issue was a study conducted by Haslam and, uh, and Riker, who were trying to replicate the study, basically didn't see the same outcome. As Blum describes, quote, far from breaking down under escalating abuse, prisoners banded together and won extra privileges from the guards who became increasingly passive and cowed, end quote. Wow, so the guards were basically finding ways to be more humane. Evidently. And interestingly, Zimbardo was purportedly writing to the editors of the journals to which they were submitting their work to try and prevent the publication. Ugh, I can't imagine how frustrating that would be. I mean, just knowing how hard it is to get published in general, having a prominent member of the scientific community actively trying to prevent your work from being published, I mean, that would be maddening. Yeah, I mean, it would be absolutely brutal. It does eventually get published, however. Um, Though Zimbardo was evidently interested in, uh, in getting the study he oversaw made into a movie, which I hadn't seen. I didn't even know there was a movie. Yeah, me neither. And I would have been totally interested in seeing it. I mean, even before I was aware of all the issues with the study. But the fact that neither of us, nor evidently a bunch of people, were aware of the updates to this research, it may suggest something about how useful the results of that fateful experiment have been. Useful, but not necessarily accurate. Exactly. And so there's a quote from the article um, that Ben Blum wrote um, that I think is really insightful on this point. So, quote, The appeal of the Stanford experiment seems to go deeper than its scientific validity, perhaps because it tells us a story about ourselves that we desperately want to believe, that we, as individuals, cannot really be held accountable for the sometimes reprehensible things we do. As troubling as it may seem to accept Zimbardo's fallen vision of human nature, it is also profoundly liberating. It means we're off the hook. Our actions are determined by circumstance. Our fallibility is situational. Just as the gospel promised to absolve us of our sins if we only behave, uh, the Stanford prisoner experiment offered a form of redemption tailor-made for a scientific era, and we embraced it." End quote. Yeah, that's really well stated. It was a really useful narrative at the time. Right. Um, and as if this wasn't a wild enough story about how a foundational story in, um, in psychology is fairly flawed, Ben Blum takes us on another wild ride. 
wilder than what we've discussed? I mean, I think so. So so he describes an event where an army ranger, and for people outside of the U.S. who might be unfamiliar with that designation, army rangers are a highly trained group within the military. And so anyways, to quote the article, quote, a 19-year-old U.S. army ranger named Alex Blum drove a, a, a superior in the rangers and three other men to a Bank of America branch at Tacoma, where they leapt out of his car and committed an armed takeover robbery using pistols and AK-47s. Three days later, Alex, who happens to be my cousin, <laughs> was arrested in our hometown in Denver, Colorado. Alex claimed to, be our, uh, claimed to our family to have believed he had been participating in a training exercise. After the radical conditioning of the month-long ranger indoctrination program, which is actually what it's called, um, he had just undergone, right? He had followed his superior without questioning. For Alex's sentencing hearing, his defense team called on a prominent expert to argue that his involvement in the robbery was due not to his own free will, but to powerful situational forces. So, Bo, who, do you, who would you guess they called to testify? I mean... It couldn't possibly be Philip Zimbardo, could it? <laughs> That's right. So Zimbardo testified on his behalf, and this resulted in a lenient sentence for, um, for Alex Blum. Now, you know, there's more of this story that's absolutely worth reading. And we'll post the link to the article in the show notes. For sure. And, you know, suffice it to say that Alex's involvement in the robbery might have been a bit less involuntary, but interestingly, while Zimbardo's study became widely controversial following the publication of, Le of uh, Le Texier's book, the documentary we discussed. That's right. So, so that's published, and evidently a ton of people are trying to contact Zimbardo. And Ben Blum gets to chat with him via Skype with a backdrop of a perpetually ringing phone. He's probably getting tons of calls. Evidently. And so, you know, they have this conversation, some of which we've quoted. Um, but then he's quoted as saying, according to Ben Blum, quote, If prisoners said, I want to get out, and you said, okay, then as soon as they left, the experiment would be over. All the prisoners would say, I want to get out. There has to be a good reason now for them to get out. The mentality has to be, in their mind, I am a prisoner in a prison, not I'm a college student in an experiment. I don't want my money. I'm quitting the experiment. You don't quit a prison. That's the whole point of the Pirandellian prison. At one level, you're a student in a basement in an experiment. At another level, you're a prisoner being abused by guards in a county jail. Wow. I mean, it just seems like the experiment was basically fundamentally flawed from its conception. Pretty much. And, you know, evidently Zimbardo confirmed that the undergrad did indeed devise many of the rules for the guards. And then, after Blum asks him if he thought Le Texier's book might change how people perceive his classic experiment, he said the following. Oh man, another quote? I mean, after the last one, I can't imagine it gets any better for Zimbardo. <laughs> <clears throat> well, okay, so he said, quote, I don't know. In a sense, I don't really care. At this point, the big problem is, I don't want to waste my, any more of my time. After my talk with you, I'm not going to do any interviews about it. It's just a waste of time. People can say whatever they want about it. It's the most famous study in the history of psychology at this point. There's no study that people talk about 50 years later. Ordinary people know about it. They say, what do you do? I'm a psychologist. It could be a cab driver in Budapest. It could be a restaurant owner in Poland. I mean, I'm a psychologist. And they say, did you hear about the study? It's got a life of its own now. If he wants to say it's all a hoax, that's up to him. I'm not going to defend it anymore. The defense is its longevity. Oh, this guy. <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a quote, particularly if it's the last quote he gave. But of course, the longevity of a study is no scientific defense. The data from the study is considered in comparison to data from other studies, 
you know, if it matches, then we come to a consensus. Yeah, of course. And, um, you know, there are many ideas that lasted quite a long time that were overturned, overturned by better science. And, you know, Ben Blum artfully concludes his article. And I feel like there's no way for us to encapsulate it. However, um, there's a quote uh, that he, he has from Greg Feist, whom he'd quoted earlier on how the study was perceived over time. And so he says, quote, I hope there does come a point now that we know that what we do, where Zimbardo's narrative dies. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen soon, but hopefully it will happen because I think it's, and he evidently pauses here dramatically. Of course, very, very dramatic. <laughs> right. And he con uh, concludes it with, quote, it is a lie, end quote. It is a lie. <laughs> yeah. Lies. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's an awesome story that everyone interested should read because Ben Blum is a, is a hell of a writer. Well, all right. We should probably call it a podcast here. So until next time, thank you for listening, everyone. And if you enjoyed it, we'd love a nice rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you're listening. Otherwise, thanks for listening to us. Yes. Thanks, everyone. I like how this podcast basically is all about how terrible Stanford was <laughs> in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I like how they're, you know, the college diversity rating, you know, trends are like, well, we won't do standardized test scores, but let's make sure we get some master sadists in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, when I was like prepping for topics, I definitely didn't like look for Stanford related topics, but it's how it ended up.